I was also thinking about like, because you know, United States is a country like built on genocide of Native Americans, uh, slavery of you know, Black Africans. Uh, we invade a lot of countries in the Middle East just for the oil. Uh, Israel is doing a lot of horrible things to Palestinians. And you know, there's like billions of dollars spent on the troops to, like, pretty much, like, just annihilate uh, countries that are like in in Middle East, um, just parts. They're just conquest. And I'm just kind of curious to know. And this is something I struggle with too. Like, how how do we, I guess, live in a country that stands for all of this crazy and horrible things that you know goes on in the country? And I, I, I don't know, like, how, I guess what is kind of your position on like ant- the imperialism of like the United States and like the war that's been going on, um, you know, just like, across all over the world. And like, like how, how do you kind of uh, make a stance or like what values do you put in to just challenge this uh, notion of imperialism that's been going on within the United States? And I know this is like a large question. I struggle with it too, personally. Um, just because of like, you know, my family coming from Southeast Asia and Laos where, uh, you know, like U- U.S. military has been intervening and bombed. Uh, a lot of us, in th- uh, people of color in this country are here because of like, you know, genocide, slavery and war. But I, I was just kind of curious about your thoughts about like U.S. Mi- militarism and imperialism and like, how can we challenge it? Uh, I, I know this is like a very <laughs> like broad question and, I, you know, there's no like... There's no like single answer. <laughs> well, tax evasion for one. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're not going to do that. Um, I don't know, Leah, if you want to go first. Um, I, I feel like I got to think about this one. I mean, that's, um, that's so tough. I just know, I like, I'm thinking about it from the mental health perspective. Like, um, there's just a lot of, this is not going to answer your question, I think, but I'm just going to go for it. Um, there's a lot of guilt and shame with acculturation and like knowing that these things are happening abroad, but we like left to create a better life here, but then our better life is contributing to the taxes that are contributing to the oppression there. Um, there's a lot of issues with acculturation with that piece, like the guilt and the shame um, and like the identities is like, this is my nationality, like I'm an American, but I'm also... I'm also Palestinian or I'm also Arab or I'm also this and that, you know? And so, um, and then you add spirituality and it's like, I mean, I've heard parts of my community talking about like, yeah, what, how do we ethically do our taxes? And then like knowing that it contributes to the oppression of others across the globe, not just in our regions, which by the way is, I would never label, <laughs> please, if you're like Muslim, do not um, own the, or dominate the um, religion over certain regions like the Middle East and South Asia. Like there's there's Black Muslims, there's um, you know Muslims in Europe, and it's just we're so diverse. We're more than that. But you know that's the that's the general idea. Is like there's just a lot of guilt and shame. I know I've had I've had to work through some of that within my own mental health journey with my therapist. Um, and it's just so it's hard because I thought of I used to growing up I would avoid politics because politics were always pinned against me. And it took my therapist and my profession to tell me like, hey, actually you use politics for, like politics can be used for good. It's what you do when you advocate for your students. It's what you do when you advocate within the school system. Um, it's what you do when, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, that happened to me, that was brought to my attention like three years ago or two years ago. Um, so I'm still learning like what that looks like for me and what that means to me. But I, I'm a, I'm, I just want to put it out there that uh, I want to normalize it and I want to talk about it because I don't think it's talked about enough, but there is a lot of guilt and shame with culturation and it is tied to these issues. So that's where I'm going to leave it out today <laughs> with that question. It's a heavy one. Um, I, think, I think for me, the approach in some sense may be a bit more practical in that uh, just know know what your supply chains are know what your you know your power is in your money so we can be as um as knowledgeable and as informed as as tiktok but 
at the end of the day, it's not going to make any difference if you keep putting your money exactly where you were putting it before. So um, what that might mean is if you're investing in the stock market, right? What companies are you investing with? What portfolios are you buying up? What stocks are you buying up? Um, another thing is, I think, know your history, right? Know, know what... Know, you know, what the U.S. did in Libya, right? Why is Gaddafi such a bad guy all of a sudden? Because he nationalized Libyan resources. You know, know what's going on in Iran. For young Muslims, I think that's very important. It's very important because um, it goes back to what Aliyah said earlier in the conversation, which is that you kind of have to juggle your identity here in, in this part of the world, right? If you are, I can, if you're a Muslim woman who is from an Indian background, born in India, it's a little bit easier. Because, okay, you're Muslim and you're Indian, so culturally it's an easier thing to do. But if you're a Muslim Indian growing up in the Midwest, like you're going to be asked time and time again to kind of speak for yourself, right? So know your history, know what's what, so that way you can have these more intelligent conversations and be able to hold your own and kind of make your decisions and not let American culture, so to speak, sway how you see yourself at the moment, that's all I can yeah, I love I love that you bring that up. I mean, that's like that's that's what I mean. It's like be aware of how you're feeling about it. Be aware of where you're at. It's like sometimes it's so overwhelming to like focus on the bigger picture. But again, it's like finding the balance, right? So for me, it's empowerment through your own mental and again figuring out your identity and where you fit in the life that you want to create for yourself. Um, but I love that you even brought up it can be as simple or as complicated as like, what, where are you putting your money? Where are you investing? So for me as a Palestinian, I try my best to divest or to, I was a whole part of the CSVLB divestment movement. Um, and my sister uh, joined CSVLB after me um, and completed it. So that was awesome. But um, so divestment is like di literally divesting from um, companies that were uh, leading to the oppression of um, countries, but especially, especially Palestine. Um, so, you know, I don't buy like Sabra Hummus. I don't because they're, you know, so figuring out where things are made. She's like, yeah, uh, figuring out where things are like made and just trying, you know, to not like I don't eat at Chick-fil-A and it's not because they're, you know, well, they probably are. But like, it's not because they've done anything specific to Muslims or, um, you know, I don't know if there's a, a country li like linked to like oppression with them, but like, I don't like their views on the LGBTQ plus community. I don't. So I, don't, I have not eaten Chick-fil-A in years. Um, so it's like making decisions like that. Like, do I miss the waffle fries? Yes, but <laughs> it's fine. Like I'll survive. So um, same thing with Starbucks. It's still like a debate of whether or not they contribute to Israel, but I know that the CEO personally does. So like, I try not to get Starbucks. I'm more of a Phil's person. Um, but you know, PSL season is a killer for me. So <laughs> it's like, it's balancing the, it's just balancing and figuring out like, where do you stand? And also knowing that like, you can only, what, what, what can you control? You can only control you, your internalization of things, your identity, your process, your mental health. Um, but also where you invest things in or where you're putting your money at. Your money is your vote, which is a big topic that came up, not just within our community, but um, overall, like in our nation, because we're, we're seeing how it's affecting everyone. So. Yeah. You donate to organizations that support yeah. Palestine. You donate to organizations that'll support your causes and then write them off on your taxes. Like, what are you gonna right. do? Right. I mean, I think you have to be practical about these things because I, I don't see any one person standing up to this kind of global system that we have, right? That allows the whole world to function in a, in a particular way. Supply chains, for instance, what are you going to do? Just grow your own food and grow your own cotton and then make it like, right. it's, it's, it's not feasible, right? So you do what you can. Now, my question actually, Takashi, you brought up you're from Laos or your family is from Laos. So how did, how did that work for you? Like, how do you see 
Because this is an interesting question, so I assume that you've spent some time thinking about it. So for us, or maybe I can just speak for myself, Alia, we have sort of this Muslim dynamic on top, right? So it's kind of this like, cultural issue, then this Muslim issue, and then we're women, and yep. then, I don't know, just pile <laughs> A ton of things. <laughs> yeah. But for you, I don't know if you have this religious thing on top of that as well. Like, how does that work? Um, I'm not particularly religious. For me personally, um, I grew up Jehovah's Witness. Uh, I, and it, it's, it's like a weird story because I, I was born in Japan, but my family is from Laos as refugees. They came to Japan. Um, and they only, we became Jehovah's Witness because there's this random lady came in knocking on our door saying, hey, we're Jehovah's Witness. And my, my family's like, oh, sure, let's just join. Because we, we wanted to adapt into the culture. Because and we didn't know that Jehovah's Witness was like a minority uh, religion in Japan at that time. But like, that's how we just kind of ended up. Um, and when I came over here in the States, uh, I was still Jehovah's Witness for a couple of years, but I didn't really like believe in it. Um, you know, I fell asleep during like the sermons and stuff. But I don't, I don't necessarily think the religion plays a, a strong role in my point of view, um, personally. But I think for me to answer the question I asked would be kind of like what y'all said, because um, I'm a teacher and I'm a counselor too. I, I do hold that like educate, edu educating myself and others is very important about like the real history, what the U.S. has done, but also being able to kind of going along with what Leah said, like the mental health aspect, right? We have to be able to take care of ourselves too at the same time. We can't be like, you know, hurting ourselves or like, thinking of thinking of us as someone who's constantly oppressed and there's nothing powerless feeling powerless that's like something we don't want to end up uh, I think personally for me like learning my own history uh, about Southeast Asia learning about like the oppression that Asian Americans went through in the, the states uh, there's a lot of myth that you know Asian Americans have it easy which is not true um, there's a lot of yeah there's just a lot of things that I, I, I relearned I had to unlearn first you know all the stuff I learned from K through 12. I had to relearn it um, uh, when I got into college and kind of did my own research and uh, read books. But I think personally for me, it's to connect with organizations, uh, like reading like the black radical traditions I felt more connected with than like the standard, you know, U.S. history texts. Uh, just, yeah, just connecting with organizations that fits in with my values that are like anti-imperialist and anti-capitalist. And I think that's such a great point about having a mindset that constantly where you see yourself as being oppressed, because I can say even that, um, like Aliyah, when you started out, you kind of pointed out like, these are the privileges I have. I think that while it would be easy to say like, oh, Muslim women, no, it's too bad, you guys can't do much. It's like, no, that's not true. You ask a Muslim woman who's from Palestine, who grew up on the West Coast, her story is going to be very different. Her, what she can, cannot do, decided to do, you know, the support that she got, didn't get, is very different from a Muslim woman, you know, who grew up in Florida or who grew up in rural India. So I think that that is very important, Takashi, what you said about not having this mindset of I'm oppressed and I'm powerless. Um, yeah, which I think then maybe it would make for an interesting conversation to place that sentiment into like the current political rhetoric. I don't know what that would look like. Anyway, I'm not gonna touch that. Oh, we can't hear you. Hey, your mic is off. Thanks, sorry. I was saying, uh, I like how you mentioned that because some Muslim households are straight up matriarchs. Like, mat like you'd be scared. I was more scared of my mom than my dad. So, I mean, like you would be like, you would see some of, some of my house, some of my friends' households were straight up run and most of them are like low key run by the woman. So low key and high key actually is my point. So you just, no, no, like you can't be making these assumptions. Um, and it is, it's really different. One of the first things that uh, my students have, one of their very first assignments actually is a privilege survey. And I think we all come into um kind of conversations and spaces where we're like oh we're at we're disadvantaged in this this and this way um so i think it's like natural to i don't want to say it's natural but it's very common for people to think of like um to have a limited or deficit mindset 
Um, so when my students took these surveys, mind you, our classes really, our program, our program is very diversified. So, and we make, we make it a point to be, we're one of the only counseling programs that have a multiculturalism and counseling class, unfortunately. Um, but also fortunately, I'm very proud of that. Um, so, you know, when they took it, one of the biggest points in the discussion was the shock of how much privilege they have and how refreshing it was um, to step into that. And for them to be like, oh, actually, I have a lot more power than I think. Um, because we then you start looking at ableism and um, privilege with sexuality, right? I'm, I mean, I'm a, her a heteronormative um, cisgender, you know, female, and I pass like I pass that way. Um, one of the things that we taught, like that I've discussed in therapy, is like I'm pretty open about me being Muslim. But that came with, that comes with certain things, right? Like, it's almost like literally you have to choose at work whether or not you come out if you're not presenting Muslim. And so it's just, it's very interesting. Um, but I, I recognize my, I like, I respect and um, I just have this like deeper love for my Muslim sisters that wear the hijab um, because I just, I can't even imagine it. I tried wearing the hijab full time in 2014 and along with the outside hatred, um, that came along with it. I was like testing it out for like a week or so. Um, there was a lot of, there was actually some comments made from the community that discouraged me because I was like, okay, I, I expected that I was going to go through this experience from out, outside of our community. But within our community, I wasn't empowered either. It was kind of like, oh, so is this, because I, you know, one of my, I was, I remember because I was at a protest and I was wearing it. And my friend's mom was like, oh, so are you like a, a Friday Muslim now? Because it was like happened to be on a Friday and I was wearing the hijab, did not, I was like, hey, I'm just experimenting, seeing if this is something I want to do full time. And she like straight up shamed me for it. And it's the same way we shame or, you know, a lot of people in our community, depends on the, depends on the part of the community, but a lot of people shame some Muslims for like, you know, drinking and doing these other things. And then during Ramadan fasting, like, are you kidding me? This is, this is like, if someone wants to connect with their spirituality, let them connect with their spirituality without your baggage into it. Um, but yeah, that's a longer version of this, of this rant, but I'm, I appreciate you bringing that up. This is also, this is also something as a frequenter of YouTube, I'll tell you that this is something <laughs> that's come up on these sort of Muslim, on these Muslim influencer channels now. Mm -hmm. Apparently, you have well, no, there are some Muslim influencers who've kind of built their career around the rhetoric of having a hijab on, practicing modest clothing. You know, they'll kind of teach, okay, how do you dress? How can you be trendy and still be a Muslim? Jiving yeah. is a dichotomy. Um, <laughs> so, so recently, what's happened is. A few of them, a few of the more notable influencers have said like, oh, you know what? We're taking off our hijab. Yes. It's something that we just can't keep up with and um, whatever it is. And the amount of backlash that you get from within the Muslim community, I mean, forget outside the Muslim community. Because outside the Muslim community, you can imagine the rhetoric goes from like apathy to yay, you're free now. But within the Muslim community, it's like now you've kind of put yourself in this place where anything and everything is fair game. Like people can say whatever they want to you and think they're, you know, they feel hella entitled. Yeah. Like, they're like, may God help your soul. It's like, why? Cause you can see my hair. Like, what yeah. It's a little much. So I think that's, that's a very interesting experience that women, Muslim women in the West are going through now. Um, yeah. And it's a lot more, it's a lot more out in the open because of things like social media, because of this culture that we have of like privacy, not a big deal. Let me share my life with you. So yeah. I think that also is something interesting to see. And I think sort of, sorry to go off on a bit of a tangent is um, this comes back to what I was saying about having to sort of stand up and respond to outside questions and say like, I'm a Muslim and this is what I believe. I think as our culture becomes more and more and more open and more, um, uh, you know, like people like to show now, right? There's, there's a great book, I think was 
Guy Debord in Spectacle of Society of the Spectacle or something. He talks mm -hmm. about how, you know, we evolved from what we knew was what we are. And now it's sort of like what we, what we kind of project is who we want to be, like what we own, the things we wear. We use those things as a tool to tell people like, oh, this is what I am and this is what I believe. So I think as the society becomes more, moves more and more towards those things, we will see more and more people having opinions on things that maybe a few decades ago, they would have just kept their mouths shut to be like, okay, that's not really my business. But now because of the way, you know, information moves around and because of the platforms that people put themselves on, you have this thing that's created where now you kind of have to be more of this is my opinion and this is where I stand. And, you know, if you don't have an opinion, you all of a sudden are also part of the oppressor and there's that rhetoric. And then there's another layer to it, which is that, okay, but now I'm opening myself up to all this criticism that otherwise I wouldn't have been getting because now these are like things in my personal life that now have been politicized to some end and I have to have an opinion on them and I share them in a certain way. I think that is its own mess. And so I think for Muslim youth, it's gonna be quite a lot to take on. I mean, that and climate change, so. <laughs> yeah. <Good. laughs> and there is, um, unfortunately, um, there is a lot of um, like women changing their mind about wearing the hijab. Um, and uh, it's like literally for both reasons, outside and inside the community. And, you know, it is, it is what it is. Like, it's not, I guess I shouldn't have said it, unfortunately, because it literally is like, as long as you feel good about it, that's the most important piece. But unfortunately, the conversation that's happening over it is, why are women taking off this so-and-so and so? And like, it's like, why are youth? It's because of social media and these influencers. And it's like, dude, it's because you're not having actual conversations that you should be having where people feel connected to whatever that it's supposed to mean, right? So you have, like, I just, I despise, I mean, like, sometimes I see some friends who are advocates or advocates that I used to, like, respect, and the conversation they're having is not about, like, you know, uh, what can we do to support our community during this time, or we should have, you know, a meeting or a list of places you can donate to like help, you know, there's like so many important topics to be discussed for right now. What's being discussed, this trend is what they're calling it of taking off the hijab, which is not fair to anyone. It's like not for you to discuss. It's not like, so, and then if we are going to discuss it, um, it should be about like, what support do you need or what, what can we do? You know, like if you're going to respond to it, respond, which again, shouldn't really, shouldn't really call for a response. Like if I'm, I'm going to wear something, I'm going to wear something. If I'm not going to wear something, I'm not going to wear something. But if it's going to call for a response, then what way can you make it like open? What way can you make it supportive? Um, I don't know. It's just, it's so, it's really, it's kind of like literally like the whole you're free thing, but the opposite of that. Um, so it's like the person who's deciding whether or not to wear hijab, there's no winning. There's no winning. It's like, you have to create the space. That's, it's like, so I've watched friends go through it and it's so taxing on them that they actually like end up distancing themselves from certain people, which actually is probably a good thing. But, um, the, the fact that they have to distance themselves from either a community or part of community that they know, there's a lot of grief with that. Um, and it's, it's taxing because it's like they're carrying that on their shoulder instead of uh, us helping our community carry whatever issue it is on the shoulder because it's not about the hijab. It's always about something else. And then the something else is connected to how you're responding, to how the community responds. So, so I think this is a very interesting, like, I, I think that your response to this, Aliyah, is so, it's so on the mark for the West, you know, and it's so like, of course, of course we should have this response. But now I was having a conversation with somebody who is from Iran. Um, and he, I think came maybe a couple of years back to Canada. And he was telling me how like people are so liberal, but that there's this sort of, it's like this strange thing. And it comes back to what, what we were talking about just now. It's like, it's this strange thing because back home like we're not sharing these parts of our personal lives for other people to comment on so it's like if you're gonna share them 
and you're going to build something on top of it and be ready for what you get. So I think in the West, like we, because of, because of our cultural context, right? We want to be as inclusive as possible. We want to be, some of us want to be as inclusive as possible, as liberal as possible to say like, okay, this land is shared by everybody and we're all different. We can be a salad bowl or fruit salad, whatever. But um, in back home, so to speak, I put that in air quotes because I realize it's going to be audio. Uh, back home, you find that people are, are kind of like, okay, well, this is our personal life. And if this is what we're going to do, like it doesn't necessarily have to be a shared thing. It doesn't have to be a shared experience. Yep. And so I, I find that, I find that interesting. And the other thing I also was talking to him about is he was saying, you know, we are facing, he was saying that we are facing this sort of opposition to beliefs that are so old um, that haven't really been questioned for a long time. And I think that's, that might be more of a sociological thing, right? Because if you have beliefs with religious beliefs within a certain cultural context, like, why would you question them? Because those beliefs, I'm sure, have been molded by that cultural context. Right, so when right. you move cultural contexts and all of a sudden, you know, people are fighting over where, whether to wear the hijab or not wear the hijab, then it's like, okay, well, now there needs to be a reinterpretation and it's right. time for religion and its interpretations and its followers to maybe evolve in a certain way. And then maybe they'll have to re-evolve at a later time in the same context because now the political atmosphere is different or something like that. I mean, even within my own family, I grew up with a dad who loved to argue with family members because he's more, I don't know, he thinks he's more like science slash factual. I, I love I love seeing how he perceives himself, but um he loved debating with family members. Actually, till this day, still debates with family members about um, that modesty in the Quran was not meant to be like, oh, you have to wear hijab. It just meant that your character is modest and how you present yourself is modest. And so he loves it. And then like my aunts are like, you know, women in the family or other people in the family are like, are you serious? This is what you believe? And it's, and he's like, yeah, this is what, and he'll take the verse and he'll like interpret it and dissect it and be like, this is literally about your character. It's not about like, you know, what you have to wear. Cause he was like, you could be wearing hijab and you could just be like, have like the worst character in the world. And so for him, it's like, why are you contradicting yourself or why are you being a hypocrite or whatever? So um, it's, it's very entertaining. I like he, from a young age till now, just always his whole life has been about like pointing out these like contradictions and these um, again, like, the, the, like we took one thing and just ran with it. <laughs> Instead of like, let's sit and reflect. Yeah, exactly. Um, different people. Yeah, I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there, so, okay, there's, I can give you two things on this. The first is, there's another resource. Her name is Mona Al-Tahawi. She had published a piece called, uh, Why Do They Hate Us? Or something like that. Yes. Foreign Policy. So she's great. She's part of Musawa, to go back to that other thing. Oh, okay. And she has... They did an interview with her on the Oxford Union, and you can look it up. It's a few years old now, but she presents a really interesting argument to say, you know, now what's happening on the right, you see, so again, now we're in this kind of like nuanced situation where on the one hand, you're like, I wear the hijab for myself and, you know, for my spirituality, then you have people who are wearing it because of a cultural context. And Mona Al-Tahawi comes in and she, I think, was talking about uh, the the burqa ban in France, and she was talking about the hijab, and she was saying, you know, now another thing that's happening is people are taking feminist rhetoric to say this is my choice, and then kind of cutting it at its knees, and I think those are the exact words she used to say like, okay, well, if it's not, like, there are women who are forced into wearing it, and then there are women who are not, who take it on on their own accord, right? So like, what do we do there? So right. that's a good resource. Um, and I think the other thing that I was going to mention was the tradition of ishtihad in Shia Islam. So in Sunni Islam, I think you have where you have ulema and ulema make uh, certain decisions and they issue fatwas. Um, and fatwa literally just means opinion, by the way. Because in the media, they say, you know, Osama bin Laden issued a fatwa. It's like, yeah, it's, his know, opinion. it's, like it's some kind of law or something. <laughs> yeah. It's like, 
It's ridiculous. Fox News issues their fatwas all the damn time. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there's that. But in, in Shia Islam, I know there is this concept of ishtihad, which basically means um, like kind of discussing something over, reasoning it out according to the time or the context. Uh, and I think that, that that is something that perhaps we should um, look into a little bit more just generally amongst the youth. Because now it is a time where you have to evolve and you have to reinterpret and you have to do re-readings of a lot of these things that have just been taken as they are and not contextualized, like you said, um, and kind of just like blindly taken and followed. Yeah, again, I think it's like a fear-based thing, which is really sad. It's like, right, like right so I get it. Like they, um, communities want to protect their practices um, which is really important, but like it becomes more from fear than it does again from love or from purpose, um, which ends up kind of distancing or defeating the purpose, um, which is unfortunate. So, I mean, I think what you mentioned is like so on point because it's like, look at, it's literally all about making choices for women when the choice isn't theirs to make or the opinion isn't theirs to have. So look at Billie Eilish. She dresses modestly and she's, do you know who, who that is? Sorry, you look confused. <laughs> she's a, a popular, um, I don't know, a pop star. I don't know what she would call it. She's a famous artist. So singer, you know, and she wears really baggy clothes. And the reason for that is because she doesn't want to be objectified, like, especially being a young woman in this industry and like working her way up in the industry. Like she doesn't want to be known for that. And that's like, that's, that's a form of modesty and so like she's like celebrated for that but again if you look at a woman who wears burqa for very similar reasons um it's like oh shit you're oppressed and so it's just like the the it literally depends on where you're at and what you're it's just so interesting like everybody has their own filter on things yeah yeah you know what that reminds me of i don't know if you all saw this political cartoon is just like one image it shows a, a western blonde woman in a bikini and a lady in burqa and they're both saying the same thing they're like oh that poor woman she must be from like an oppressed country and society where they oppress the woman and they're both thinking the same thing it was just a different context and you know coming from different points of view you know there's a moroccan um feminist her name is fatima mernissi She's passed away now. Sorry to pass. I'm giving you a lot to Google. Um, there's a <laughs> Moroccan feminist. Her name is Fatima Mernissi. And I believe she has a book called The Western Woman's Harem. And it's very interesting because in that she makes, she makes an argument for in the West, women, like the Western ideals of beauty and whatnot, um, they're seen as, you know, you have to be a certain size. They're kind of fetishize like the younger the woman is the you know like western men prefer their women slim and they prefer their women sort of childlike almost and she relates that with like the removal of hair and all sorts of things and she says you know in the muslim world we like our women a little like with something on their bones and so in that she kind of does exactly what you did and exactly what that cartoon does which is kind of flip the script to be like who's really oppressed it's the is that there may be shared oppression, just our oppressors are different. Yeah. So I think she's she's an interesting read as well. She yeah, the othering is a common thing. The other the othering of other <laughs> cultures, yeah. toxic thing that uh, we all do. Carlos, I don't know if you had any questions or comments. Sorry, I know <laughs> it's just kind of been. Uh, yeah. That, no, it's been really good. That's why I haven't. You know, I haven't said anything, uh, but I mean, I did have I did have one question, which is actually from the, the document we sent uh, you guys. You know, you guys went over a lot of stuff, uh, but there was one thing I was curious about kind of going back to your own personal experiences as, as like Muslims in in North America. Uh, how would you how would you describe your the difference between the typical? Uh, well, I guess a male Muslim, like a, a Muslim man's experience in North America versus a, a Muslim woman's experience in North America. How would you compare those experiences? Dang. You know? Yeah. That's so broad. I mean, sorry. <laughs> it's a good question, though. 
um, because they have male privilege, but also they're more like, I, I don't know, but also they deal with the same Islamophobia. Like, it's so, Sibyl, would you like to answer that for yourself? Well, I'm not a Muslim man, so my insight will only go so far. Uh, I do, I remember reading something not too long ago about how the phrase Allahu Akbar, right, which is a very common phrase for Muslims. Um, they say it, we say it in almost every prayer, I, I think. Um, and so that phrase in the West has kind of, they've taken it and kind of made it this like symbol of toxic masculinity so to speak in islam and so like you know allahu akbar which means god is great that's literally all it means has kind of become has kind of turned into this like almost violent phrase used by violent muslim men who are ready to go out on jihad and kill everybody um so i can see how it's, it's interesting because they because basically now what you're seeing is kind of like caricatures of Muslims and what they should be. Women should be meek and, you know, Muslim women should be oppressed. Muslim men should be violent and, you know, ready, like belligerent. So I can only assume, I can only imagine that um, a Muslim man who does present himself as, you know, like with the beard, maybe with the little prayer hat. I'm sorry, I don't know what the word for I'm trying to figure it out. Sure. Um, that, yeah, maybe it is more difficult for them and that they're perceived as threats depending on where they are. Um, that's as far as I can, I can think at the moment. I don't know. I don't know. And then I don't know if within, again, it's, it's cultural, right? If you're a Pakistani Muslim man, there are certain expectations of you within the community, within the ummah, and then there are certain expectations of you outside the community, what you should look like, what you should be doing, the same if you're an Arab Muslim man. And that too, where, where are you from? Are you Egyptian? Are you um, Palestinian? Are you Iraqi? Are you from Iran? I don't know. So I'm not sure what's expected of Muslim men from different cultural contexts from within their family and within their communities versus what's expected from, of them from outside. I can imagine that from the outside, they're not expected to be very friendly people, just based on what we've done with this one little phrase here in the West. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Leah. Whereas, you know, that's beautifully put. I mean, I mean, like, whereas we're underestimated constantly, which actually could be, like, it could be more treated to women, but also especially because we have this, like, layer of, like, oh, you're oppressed. Or, oh, your family is so strict and they control everything. And it's like, well. That's so I wonder now, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I wonder now if then being a Muslim woman compared to being a Muslim man is actually a privilege. And so that's, you, that's why I couldn't answer it at the beginning because I'm like, damn, it's like kind of mixed. Like, like I think about, yeah, like to, just in the just typical day-to-day -day life. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's like give or take. I mean, there's some situations like in the dating world where I feel like they have a lot of privilege. Um, you want to get into that? I don't know. <laughs> dating? No, I don't think I'm the right person to speak to. <laughs> but um, there is some um, issues where like they can kind of, I feel like they can kind of control or like change the narrative on you. So it's like if, you know, they're, I feel like it's more accepted that they date um, you know, outside religion or outside even just cultural or ethnicity. Um, it's just, I think it's just more accepted. Again, I think that just comes with general male privilege. It doesn't even just have to be like from the Muslim community, but also it's like, um, if you're like a Muslim woman, like dating is like really hard. Cause it's like, okay, well, if you approach, um, a non-Muslim man and you tell them, oh, like I'm Muslim, they're like, <clears throat> like oh is this a terrorist situation or like you know they get super intimidated and then because they don't know it it's like automatic turn off and it's like kind of sad um and then you on the other hand you bump into like a muslim man and they're like oh i they're not going to date you authentically like they would anybody else like you almost feel like there's a switch that goes off like oh i need to like I don't know. They call it respect, but it feels like it feels like something different. They feel like they have to like step up or like act differently. And it's like, cool. So were you disrespecting other women that before me? Like what was happening that like, 
So I don't get to even authentically know you. <laughs> you are. So I don't know. I feel like that's like, I, I feel like that's a privilege that they hold that they get to just bounce in that way and different. Um, I don't even know what the proper like term or how to like really describe it, but that's like an issue. That's definitely an issue. And I think that's where our experiences vary like highly <laughs> is in the like romantic slash dating arena. Um, that's so interesting, Aliyah. I don't, I've not, I had never dated a Muslim man before. I should also disclose that I grew up in a household where my mom is Muslim, she's Ismaili, but my dad is Catholic. Mm-hmm. So we obviously are raised Ismaili, we're Muslim. Um, but so this, I, this like dating a Muslim man uh, within the community, I hadn't experienced it until now recently. So like, what have your, has that been your experience with dating? Like you've yeah, dated mine, actually all of my friends, <laughs> like literally most of my friends. And, it, and in fact, my friends that wear the hijab get it so much worse. Because it, they're wearing the hijab. Yeah. So it's like, you know, it just is like the response is just more extreme on either end of the spectrum. No, I find that very interesting, actually. Because yeah, I definitely could differ between woman to woman and like just the, again, the community where you live, yeah. um, who you're talking to, because even that person's demographics are going to differ. But that seems to be a very common experience from like where I'm at and like <laughs> within my circle. Um, it's, it's really annoying. <laughs> I've, I'm sorry to butt in, but I've actually noticed, I've actually heard about this, but it, from memes, from like yeah. Muslim memes, I see of, uh, and I guess, I guess another way to describe it is formality, mm-hmm. right? This be, being like, I guess like when, I guess if a Muslim man like dates a Muslim woman, like a hijabi, I guess, and there's just a, there's a sense that the, the man kind of is overly formal during, in, during the date right for for whatever reason i guess i don't i don't know but yeah and that's a tendency that they that and that's something they might not express with uh with like other women yeah i've I've seen that kind of described in meme form at least yeah yeah the presence is just different like it's like almost like um yeah they're more formal like you know wedding has to happen sooner like marriage is a more serious topic to discuss and it's like dude what if i just want to get to know you (laughs) You know, it's like, can we just authentically like be present with each other without all these like labels? And so it's like, I don't know, it just is such a different experience. It's like so weird. And and again, you don't feel like you win in either situation. Like there's, again, it's like damned if you do, damned if you know. So it's like, I don't know. I think that for Muslim men, okay, I think maybe they're in a bit of a tough spot. It's kind of like, if you... (laughs) It's kind of like when you act out at school, it's different because nobody knows you there. They don't know, you know, like if you're acting out at home in front of family, you can get whooped. But if you're acting out at school, like that's a whole different dynamic. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, people don't know what's expected of you generally and there's nobody there to sort of enforce it. So I can even imagine that for Muslim men dating other Muslim women, there are maybe, and Muslim women too, are maybe far more in tune with what's expected Islamically. Like, you can't hold my hand, but, you know, you can bow from afar. I'm just, I'm being facetious. But yeah, I think, <laughs> but it's like, they, you know, there's a common language that you share there, I think, right. to some degree. And right. maybe that's why there is this hesitation. And that's why there is this discrepancy that exists in dating culture. Because I even, even historically, I actually don't know very much about Muslim dating culture. I think there is a book about it, but I haven't read it. I don't know. It's it's just so interesting. But it really touches on the point that you were making earlier. Is like they're kind of screwed too. Like it really is like the system screws us both. And like they are them on the expectation side and us on like the consequences of those expectations. You know, it's um yeah, it's just an interesting dynamic where yeah, I could definitely see that. And then you gotta think about too, it depends on how that person carries their identity and their interpretation of how they practice. So they might be bringing their own level of like shame or understanding or whatever it is. They're bringing their own baggage in it just like anybody else would. Um, so, you know, you look at it from the non-Muslim side, that person's bringing in their ignorant bag- baggage, right? That they're not even willing to ask questions or like, 
maybe they'll try, but they're like inherently uncomfortable with it because of, again, like this, like racism that's like underneath it all. So, yeah. So I can, I also wanted to add one more thing, Aliyah, when you were, what you were saying earlier is I know that one thing that I've heard that gets brought up a lot is they'll say that in the Quran, it says that Muslim men are allowed to, to marry um, women who are from the other religions of the book, the El Kitab, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Christian women, Jewish women, they're, they're allowed to technically date even within those religions. But for Muslim women, that's not the case. Mm-hmm. That they are not allowed to date men outside of Muslim faith. So that I hear often too about yeah. like Muslim dating. But that's men able to get away with that. Yeah, I actually thought of an imam when I was MSA president about this because I was like, we need to we need to discuss this because we need to get down to this because you can't be telling me about women's rights and then also because we do have a lot of rights in Islam, like financially and not taking on the man's name so that we can um, hold our own lineage. Um, but like, those are all important things that are never really discussed. But then, um, and I'm, I'm not even going to bother paraphrasing because he just, he just explained it so eloquently. Like, I wish I can kind of remember why that was or what, why that was at the time. But I remember it was based on a need um, because of like war and like famine and all these other things going on. But um, it, it's really interesting historical context and it's not as like harmful or damaging, at least the intent of it at that time um, is like, as you might assume it is, you know? So it's very similar to like the seven wife ordeal or like the seven, yeah. I mean, this is like such a thing that's so butchered, like literally nobody, I mean, I don't want to say literally nobody, that's, that's terrible, but like, it's not a thing that we want to do. Like, it's already hard enough to juggle one relationship. It's not like we're striving for hitting a certain number. Like, the, the, like those things were done out of a need. There is a need there. Yeah. Um, it was like a shortage of po- population and like women whose husbands were dying and like because of war. And, you know, there's like all these things that just aren't discussed. And so there's this ignorance that comes with it on both sides within our community and, and outside of it. Um, it just brings us back to like our points that we're making before is like these need to be revisited and discussed so that we can like, we can apply it now because it's like, we understand them, but we don't. And so we're applying how it was applied then, but we can apply it now and still abide by um, and still practice um, with good intent and honorable intent, you know, to the original, you know, meaning and, and context, if that makes sense. So there, there is this concept of, um, it's called the Azbab in Azul, which basically is just um, figuring out the context around different verses in the Quran. Um, yeah. And that is something that I know scholars of Islam take on. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty complicated, which is not to say that it can't be democratized to some end, but it is, it is a complicated thing. It's the same thing like if I ask Carlos about semantics and some part of, I don't know, about whatever you know i'm not i can look it up on google but i'm not going to have the depth of knowledge that he does right so so that's that's the thing so there should be some sort of you know democratization of understanding the context of these revelations and these religious texts unfortunately yeah. there's not and i don't know that it's encouraged actually i'd be interested to know Aliyah, in if like you grew up in a community and in a religious space where that was encouraged because I've had friends who have made the point to say like, actually that's discouraged. We're not encouraged to look these things up and say, and like read up on our own because we have to defer to the authority of whatever Sheikh or Imam is there. So yeah. I don't know if that's the that. Thankfully for me, I have been encouraged. Like my family were just like, we just like, we look up anything and everything, but like, <laughs> Um, that is something within my family that I grew up with. And then in college also, it was um, definitely some, I think that's where like halakas really were like a thing because it was, there was a need. We, we identified that there was a need, but also um, it was like encouraged within, even within our community of religious leaders, thankfully. Um, again, within certain boundaries, I guess, or depending on the person, but um, I was, I was thankful to be a little more exposed to that openness for sure. But I've also seen the other end of it. 
we we do have like a minute i i don't know um if y'all want to stay longer like i'm fine with it but i know uh i i said uh it's from three to five pacific time but if you all want to stay a little bit longer that's fine or um i don't know if y'all want to just end it here um uh, but I, i'm fine with it either way did we get through all your questions <laughs> um no but <laughs> it's all good I, I think i felt like the conversation was great i had more questions in mind too but uh if y'all have to go that's good that's fine you know I'm, I'm okay to stay. I just don't want to talk your ears off about this. Oh, no. <laughs> this is good. <laughs> just kind of going along what y'all were talking about in terms of, like, the difference between uh, Muslim men and Muslim women. I was just curious about, like, how do you, what's your opinion about the media representation in the United States of, like, Muslim men and Muslim women? And how do they, how, how you think it might differ? I know there isn't a lot of representation. A lot of it is reduced to stereotypes um, based on like what shows or uh, what platform you watch. I know YouTube has more of a like, like outside, like individual uh, folks like showcasing their life or video, t video recording like uh, narratives that are not mainstream. But mm -hmm. I just wanted to get your thoughts about like the media representation of Muslim Americans and how I might differ for men and women. Okay, so I think I think this. I'll just go back to I think what I'd mentioned earlier, which is that um, caricaturization, right, of of Muslim women and Muslim men. So you have to kind of fit into these uh, into these characters of Muslim women are oppressed, and if you do uh, even the smallest thing that it, that aligns with Western ideology and Western, you know value system, then you're kind of this underdog who's beat the oppressive religion of Islam. And if you're a Muslim man, you know, if you're soft-spoken or come across as, okay, kind of mild-mannered, then you're kind of the exception to the rule. Because Muslim men are supposed to be domineering and, you know, wife beaters and all kinds of stuff. Um, but that's a very extreme, I'm pointing out a very extreme thing. I don't know if currently in, in US media, if that's changing more and more, I would, I would hope so. I'm not very in touch with what goes on on the TV, unfortunately, or TV shows. As far as the difference goes, I think you touched on it beautifully. Like, I think it's, it's, that's just, that's how, yeah, couldn't have explained it better myself. Um, but as far as like the general presentation goes, um, I think there's more push for it being a more positive or more representative, like realistic view of um, like the Muslim community. Um, it's still kind of sad to me that we get excited. I mean, it's, I get excited too, but like the other day saw someone from my community, like kind of post, like, look at this billboard about COVID and we have a Muslim person on there. And it's like, damn, we still excited about these things <laughs> because we've been given so little, you know? So our platform definitely needs to expand in the U.S. Um, and um, I'm glad that it's not just our community. Like, I think it is starting to be other communities calling out these stereotypes and um, issues with representation in, in the media. Um, so I, I don't know. There's a lot of, like, you think about, like, um, CSI and all those, like, uh, I don't know, Blue Butt, all these like little, like all these crime shows and like the way they're just portrayed is so bad. It is. It's super like violent. It's super, um, I just feel it's, it's terrible. But um, also even within just like personal, like not even like crime or violence, like even within personal um, media, rep media representation, like people don't, I don't know why it's, I don't know what to call it. Like, it's not fetishized, but like, um, there's a hyper focus on how strict, I guess is the word. There's probably a better word out there. Um, how strict our religion is when it's like, actually, if you look at the way Christianity, Catholicism is practiced, like, it's very similar. Um, or Judaism, you know, very similar. But like, in the media, they're portrayed, I think there's still some stereotypes there, obviously, but I think that there's a more positive portrayal. Whereas like, you know, like I think about things like shows like Seventh Heaven, right? <laughs> it's like a reverend, typical like um, white Christian family. And it was like, 
um, this is like the reverence family and these are the rules that they live by. And I feel like now we're like the reverence family, but we don't have the choice of being outside the reverence family. I don't feel, I don't know if I'm making sense. You know, like we're literally held to this, like, and anything personal dating or even like a scene of us going to school. Um, it's like, you can't do this. You can't do that. And it's like, but why? Like you're Christian, like you can't do that either, but that's not what's focused. Like there's no focus on personality at all. It's always about what we can't do or what's not allowed. It's always about the limitations versus like the potential in our community, which is really sad. I guess that's a better way to, to describe it. That's a really great point, actually, what the focus is on. So I can tell you one of, one thing that's actually really funny to me is when we talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition. Sorry, what? Why are we othered? For what reason? They all developed in the same geography and like the same geographical mm-hmm. region. region. Thank you. Mm-hmm. What? Who came up with this phrase, Judeo-Christian world? It's like even within our language, there's this othering that's embedded, right? When it comes to Islam and when it comes to Muslims. And I wonder if that has to do with the political history, right? The Ottomans, the Safavids, the the Seljuks, the Abbasids, they had a lot of power in these areas. And this was before colonialism, right? Well, not before, but this is when these people held a lot of power where the West wanted to come in and take over these lands. It would have been, it's much easier to say like, oh, we align ourselves with the Jews as opposed to with the Muslims because it's a money issue. Because they have what we want. And if we can alliance ourselves here, that might help us get that. Right. Where historically, it's like there had been such tension between Judaism and Christianity for such a while. But I think it's kind of like, you know, when you have two siblings, yeah, you'll fight for attention. But when a third one shows up, then it's like, that kid sucks. Yeah, the alliance is like more worth it. The alliance is more worth it for the power. Right. And so I think that's important to keep in mind, too, when we think about Muslim representation in the West, is what, what is the, his, what is like the underpinning history there? Because right? mm-hmm. I think in, in the U.S., we have such a tendency to, I think Takashi, like you said, like this U.S. exceptionalism, right? Or maybe it was Aliyah, mm-hmm. that we have such a tendency to just see things like four-year-olds, or it's all about us. It's just the U.S. and we ended World War II and we did this and it's like, nah, you know, there was other stuff going on that affects us, but isn't really told to us, at least not in the school systems, right? Like I can't imagine how many public schools are teaching Howard Zinn. Who's reading that? Very few schools. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to have, you know, the society be open to not othering. They'd have no idea. Yeah, definitely the underlying history and also the current agenda, because mm-hmm. that changes too often. I mean, the <laughs> the prejudice and all the crap that comes along with it is the same, but it's still important to pay attention to the agenda. So, um, Aliyah, do you gonna have to go right now, or? Yeah, I'm gonna head okay. out soon. <laughs> but uh, th- thank you all for joining this conversation. Like, I learned so much and. Um, yeah, just thank you so much for just sharing the, the space and just being here on the podcast. Um, I don't know if there's like a final th- thoughts or just like one last comment y'all want to make uh, just for the listeners. I mean, you're welcome, Takashi. Just make my check out to cash. <laughs> make sure it's USD because our exchange sucks right now. <laughs> no, um, let it Yeah, I just thank you for inviting me. I think that... Um, you know, whatever was said here, again, I think we, we, we've emphasized this multiple times, but just to conclude, um, this is just, again, within our limited perspective, like we're human beings walking around learning just like you are. And I think the most important thing, again, is just to ask, like ask questions. A lot of people sometimes are offended, like are afraid of offending people. And it's just like, honestly, I'd much rather have you ask than assume. So I think if any if anyone wants to like explore any of these topics, um, just be open, be open and just ask. And I think that's how we can dive into, you know, answering these questions um, and expanding on on the things that were discussed today. 
Yeah, I agree with I agree with Aliyah one hundred percent. Like we're not spokespeople for the Muslim community or for the religion of Islam generally. I'd, I'd say, um, and I think the other thing I would like to discourage people, especially Muslim people, from doing is saying that Islam says this and Islam says that. Yeah. You no, know, Muslims say this and Muslims say that. Yes, and it's yes. very important to make the distinction um, because. That distinction is what's going to help you down the road, you know. Not not just for um, not only to have proper conversations and meaningful conversations inside the community, but also with people outside of the community to make those distinctions and respect the diversity that comes along with that. So, but also thank you for having us on. Yeah, that's so beautifully said. If there's anything that you take from this podcast, it's literally Zina's last point. So. <laughs>